According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me, if you would, in Philippians chapter 3. We're going to start a new paragraph tonight, Philippians 3.12. I think we've done everything uh, we're going to do in uh, verses 7 through 11. Although we may go back and touch on some things there in verse 11, just so we're clear, it is probably the most obscure rapture passage anywhere, and most folks don't even view it as a rapture passage. But when he says, if perhaps maybe that I might attain to the out-resurrection from the dead, um, it's it's a puzzle however you look at it. One of the more enigmatic verses uh, of the New Testament, and uh, probably the toughest section here in in Philippians is the Greek here, although verse 12 was also kind of tough as far as the the Greek syntax goes. But um, anyway, uh, I believe verse 11 is a rapture reference, and uh, we taught that on Sunday, and uh, if there's any questions on that, we can uh, can field those questions here tonight. Uh, Otherwise, we're going to move on to verse 12 and following and uh, press on, pressing on the upward way. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time of study tonight. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank You for this day and the blessing we have to assemble together. I thank You for the privilege that it is to uh, gather with the saints with the body of Christ, Father, and to, uh, to study, to show ourselves approved. It is a privilege, it is a blessing, and we are delighted to obey your word and uh, to be fed by you here tonight. So we call upon your faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding, Father. Lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, there's a microphone ready to go. There it is. All right, the runner will take it where it needs to go. And who would like to have our lead-off question tonight? I know we got some that came by email as well, and then uh, we can take our... Let me grab those real quick while uh, the rest of you are getting brave to uh, raise your hand. Um, Doug, uh, why is this thing a three-year-old heifer? Genesis fifteen nine, And a lot of times, why questions uh, are... They have the, the best answer to a why question is sometimes because, you know, because <laughs> uh, that's what God said. I don't know. Um, a three-year-old heifer and uh, a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Um, I don't know that I have any answers today, although I did learn what a heifer was. I didn't, I just thought heifer was another word for cow. But specifically, a heifer is not just any cow. Uh, a heifer is a cow that's never had a calf. So that's, now why is it three years old? I don't know. And a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram. Theodoret had an opinion, and uh, Theodoret was a fifth century, a fifth century Greek uh, church uh, father. Uh, he had an opinion. The age of the animals three years old was supposed by Theodoret to refer to the three generations of Israel which were to remain in Egypt or the three centuries of captivity in a foreign land. I think that's less likely. This is rendered very probable by the fact that in Judges 6.25, the bullock of seven years old undoubtedly refers to the seven years of Midianitish oppression. And so that's an interesting observation that Theodoret made, and that's correct. In Judges 6.25, take your father's bull and a second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. And there's no question that that seven-year-old bull matched the seven years of the Midianite uh, uh, oppression. So it's a good guess, because of the seven and seven, and then you come back to Genesis and say, well, what's up with a three-year-old, you know? Um, I don't know. Theodore was uh, uh, an amazing exegete, and he followed the Antioch school of exegesis. He was not a, uh, he didn't allegorize scripture like they did in uh, in uh, Alexandria. And so, uh, yeah, if he if he has an opinion, I, I give some weight to that opinion. But who knows? I mean, he's a fifth century Greek uh, church guy, and Genesis was 
written long before that. So anyway, no real answer there. Uh, two emails from Bill. Three questions in regards to contending for the faith is found in Jude 3. What is the faith? How does one contend for the faith? When and where is contending appropriate? And uh, interestingly enough, I talked to John Eichmann on Monday, and he he's the one that had 200 and something hours on, on the book of Jude. And he's going back into that book again, uh, coming up uh, specifically for contending for the faith. So it's a topic that he's going to be addressing in the, in the next few months. But So the faith is biblical Christianity. It's the New Testament. It's the church as opposed to Israel. It's the new stewardship. It's called the faith. And so it's the body of revelation that's given in the Greek canon to, uh, to the church. Uh, how do you contend for the faith? Well, it's a wrestling term, a contending term. You're fighting for it. You're defending it. Um, when and where is contending appropriate? And that's a marvelous question because I think some people uh, use Jude 3 as a license to, uh, to fight, <laughs> you know. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once and for all handed down to the saints. As if that verse is license to debate everybody on the planet, right? And we're going to fix everybody's doctrine. We're going to go fix the Catholics and the Lutherans and the, and you know, we're just going to fix everybody. And uh, that's not what this verse is talking about. And notice it says, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed. And the context for contending for the faith is your local church. We contend here. And when the creeps creep in, we creep them out, right? We, we say, we're not, we're not taking that teaching. We stand for truth. And so uh, they creep in unnoticed, those who are long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And so my conviction is, is that the when and where is, uh, is here and now. It's within the boundaries of the local church when creeps are coming in with false teaching. And so the, the pastor, the deacons, the spiritual leadership has to protect the flock. It doesn't tell us to go fix other churches down the street or across town or, or things like that. Um, and also, I think it does not... I think when we have fellowship one with another, if I'm going to be... If I'm going to have fellowship with a Christian and another flock, you know, I'm not going to straighten out his... You know, if he learned something from his pastor last Sunday, uh, I don't want to just sit there and just cut his pastor down and tear him apart and, and beat him up or whatever. Um, I'm going to fellowship in the things I can have fellowship with. And then, uh, uh, you know, and then as far as straightening out that other doctrine, I'm just pray, pray about it and tell them, you know, there's other understandings there. Try to be gracious and gentle about it. But I cannot apply uh, Jude 3 as a license to, to fix him or as a license to argue with everybody that's got the wrong understanding of something. Say. So that's, uh, that's the answer there. You also had a follow-up email. I think I attached to the bottom of the same note. Um, how does one contend in light of Romans 14, 22, and 23, where we were talking, oh yeah, with Cornelius on Sunday night, uh, because you have conviction. The faith that you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he that does not condemn himself in what he approves. And so, yeah, if I've got a co-worker that's got a faith conviction and whatever, he's Pentecostal, he's going to this church, and he's He's got a faith conviction about movie theaters. Well, then I'm, I'm you know, I'm not going to contend with that. I'm just going to fellowship with him, and I, I'm not going to be a stumbling block. I'm not going to throw something in his way that I know is going to offend him, in uh, in that way. I'm not going to come into work on a Monday morning telling him about all the movies I saw over the weekend, you know, or, you know, bragging about it and saying, "Too bad you can't go to the to the multiplex and whatever else." So, anyway, true story. <laughs> then. Uh, Maria had a question she emailed and uh, wanted to know about 1 John 1 9. Are we the only people that teach 1 John 1 9 this way? And uh, we're not, but it might seem that way. I heard you teach recently on 1 John 1 9 how it can be used as a meaningless repetition instead of a true confession. So if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But now are there people that abuse that, that just think all they have to do is name it and claim it, they can cite their sin, and then boom, everything's great. Even though they're not at all repentant, they intend to do the same sin again tomorrow, that they have, uh, uh, you know, they're using it as a form of mechanical legalism in order to think that they're artificially back in fellowship. And, uh, and so I stand by that, and I'll teach that any day. Um, 
It got me thinking, though, outside dispensational doctrinal churches that teach 1 John 1, 9 as a necessity to be filled with the Holy Spirit, nobody teaches that. The Baptists, Lutherans, etc., none of them. Um, I like to think that we use 1 John 1, 9. I think it is very good to constantly consider the sins in our life and confess and be cleansed frequently. But I also think that the filling of the Holy Spirit does not depend on us to confess anything. And so, really, there's two issues at work there. And, and this is good. This is actually good. I'm glad she's thinking through it. I hope that all of us will think through things this way. So, where is the command to be filled with the Spirit? Is it in the Bible? <laughs> is it in First John? No, it's in Ephesians. It's in Ephesians 5. Be filled with the Spirit. It says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And then where is the verse, uh, of course, we said it, 1 John 1, 9. Okay? And there's lots of other confession verses too. The problem is, so we've got a, an imperative to be filled with the Spirit, and we've got the confession procedure. They're in different passages. And so how do we conflate them? How do we link them together? How do we understand that this is related to that? And are we right or are we wrong? Is it wrong to connect this with that? See, And so I believe we are right. In fact, that's why I put it in spirituality versus carnality. It's in the booklet that we, that we wrote and, and make available. But what we're doing is we're synthesizing passages and you can't find any verse in the Bible that says when you rebound, you're filled with the Spirit. Okay, When you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, Right? And then 2 Timothy says, if we cleanse ourselves from these things, we will be a vessel of honor prepared uh, for the master for every good work. And since those good works have to be done under the filling of the Holy Spirit, we can take 1 John combined with 2 Timothy, combined with Ephesians, combined with Galatians, walk by means of the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And so we've got a full totality of, of New Testament passages that that I think it, not only is it very right to put them together under the label of spirituality, but it's actually wrong if you don't put them together that way under the label of spirituality. And I think uh, if, if more and more you know, Pentecostal churches or charismatic churches had a, a better pneumatology, then they would structure their spirituality in a way very similar to us. So that's, uh, that's the answer there. Um, I also think that filling is a time, it takes time. You're not just instantaneously filled. You're instantaneously spiritual, and you're instantaneously walking in the light. You're instantaneously cleansed, but filling is a process, and filling, uh, you know, takes time. You don't get the the fifteenth gallon in your tank until the fourteenth gallon is there, until the thirteenth gallon is there, until the twelfth gallon is there. So, being filled is not instantaneous, but spirituality is, if that makes sense, and. Um, and then as far as doctrinal Bible churches, it's not only, we're not the only ones, it's not just dispensational doctrinal churches that teach this, okay? Because I know Baptist churches that teach this, uh, uh, the Baptist pastor out in Florida that, that uh, Kathy has started to attend now, he's, he's not doctrinal, but he teaches rebound, he teaches confession of sin, a lot of churches do. And it's, it's amusing to me too, because I've heard this before, she doesn't mention Colonel Theme in this, but she does mention doctrinal dispensational Bible churches, but there was criticism a number of years ago that this whole rebound thing was just made up by Colonel Theme, and that no one before him ever taught this kind of stuff, see, which uh, is just not true, okay? Because uh, I can show you Lewis Berry Chafer, he that is spiritual, and uh, if you're going to try to convince me that Lewis Berry Chafer was on theme tapes... Um, <laughs> That's quite curious because Lewis Berry Schaefer wrote this in 1918. And it, it must have been maybe in the fall or the late in the year of uh, 1918 because that's the year the colonel was born, on April 1st. <laughs> so either Colonel Theme was, was, was preaching while in diapers or, or Schaefer didn't get this from Theme. You know, Theme got it from Schaefer. You know, that's, that's the order on that. And Schaefer, all the Dallas guys were trained with this stuff in the 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s. So it's, uh, by the way, if you ever want to read that, I recommend it. I recommend you read it once a year just for the, the blessings of reading Schaefer. Okay, so that's uh, the last email question that came in there. You know, it, it is worth consideration too, uh, if you're in a church or if you're of a tradition 
and you don't regularly teach how to confess your sins, how to be restored to fellowship, then yeah, you're going to spend a lot of time in carnality. Uh, but I think uh, even without the doctrine, even without the procedure, I think instinctively a lot of believers are confessing in their prayer life anyway. I think instinctively believers that are under teaching uh, of any sort, even if they don't have the the best doctrinal approach, they're going to confess. They're going to confess in their prayer life. They're going to be talking to the Lord about the, the sins they're doing and not liking. And, and I think they uh, I think they confess without knowing that they're they're following the doctrine of rebound <laughs> and uh, and so forth. Anyway, so those are the email questions, and we have uh, about a minute remaining. If we have some other questions here tonight, so we'll get the microphone to Bill Kelly, and then. Uh, his was the first hand I saw. Just a, a follow-up question. Mm-hmm. Can you explain the process of being filled with the Spirit? I know you said that it was a process. What, what would be the process of attaining the complete filling of the Spirit? Well, when we finish Philippians, we're going to go to Colossians, and then we're going to go to uh, Philemon, and then we're going to go to Ephesians. And then we're going to teach four chapters of Ephesians before we get to Ephesians 5. Um, but it's curious to me. Why is it paralleled with do not get drunk with wine? Okay, And likewise, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit filled them and everybody thought they were drunk. <laughs> Isn't that weird? And uh, there's another case too later in the book of Acts where the filling of the Holy Spirit was... There was a reference to alcohol on that occasion too. Um, and here it says, do not get drunk with wine for that is dissipation but be filled with the Spirit. And so filling takes time. Getting drunk takes time. You know, the first sip doesn't get you drunk. So how many drinks gets you filled? All right, how many drinks get you filled? And then, we, t- we discussed this this morning. I was going to color these one night and I didn't. Um, do you remember the Great Commission? In, and Robbie was t- t- teaching, teaching us this when he was here. You got the Great Commission, which says, uh, make disciples. And then how do you make disciples? Well, then there's participles. There's present active participles. Baptizing them, teaching them. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And so you have the imperative, make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And uh, the other day when I was looking at this, it just hit me. This is the same thing. It's an imperative followed by participles. And so the imperative, actually two imperatives, because do not get drunk with wine is an imperative. And then be filled with the Spirit is an imperative. And then we have participles. Speaking to one another, singing, making melody, giving thanks, being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And the Great Commission only has two participles to demonstrate the process. Be filled with the Spirit has five participles that illustrate the process. And so speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things. The more thankful you are, the more filled you are. And being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. It's a participle that's connected to that imperative of be filled with the Spirit. And so if there's a step-by-step process, there's five participles here, any one of them or all five of them could be spirit-filling as we fellowship in the Word of God, as we sing, as we give thanks, as we praise, as we uh, are subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So that's my easy answer. We'll see if I still hold to that when we get to Ephesians chapter 5. Just a real quick follow-up question. Mm-hmm. Then if we can lose the filling of the Spirit by committing sin, and we confess that sin, and then the filling of the Spirit is a process, can we then lose the filling of the Spirit by not committing sins, but yet failing to do any of those five Probably things? Probably so. And, and the more work I do on this, uh, I think we'll, we'll have a better picture on that. I also think uh, draining is faster than filling. I think, I mean, any bucket, if you poke a hole in the bottom of the bucket, or you pull the plug for you, like I've changed oil. But I, I've, seen, I've, seen, I've seen people at Jiffy Lube change oil, and when they pull that plug out from the bottom of the oil pan, it drains faster than it fills. How's that? You know. 
That's hilarious. Okay, we'll deal with that. The filling of the Holy Spirit, I think it's, it's underdeveloped, and I want to work some more on that. All right, well then, thank you, Chris. Let's get our first glimpse at this new paragraph. The... Um, Yeah, like I say, I think we finished everything we want to do here in verse 11. Um, I think the, the Greek is, is curious, and we've got puzzles here in 311. Um, we've got an uncertain particle for the if, maybe, perhaps. And then we've got the uncertainty about the verb attaining, that I may attain, I might attain. It's a subjunctive mood that indicates uh, uncertainty. And then there's the particular X. Uh, anastasis. It's not, it's not anastasis. It's a unique word for resurrection that uh, is different from the word that's used right there in verse 10, the power of his resurrection. There's a normal word for resurrection, and Paul's very familiar with it. He uses it constantly. He uses it like in 1 Corinthians 15, all throughout the resurrection chapter and many other places. Paul is not uh, unfamiliar with the term resurrection. And like I say, he used it in verse 10. So why does he switch to this other thing in, in verse 11? And uh, it's the out-resurrection. And, uh, you know, what, what's an out-resurrection? <laughs> Is that different from a, a normal resurrection? Um, and in, to be resurrected out of something, what's that? Okay. Well, it's the rapture. I believe it's the rapture. And, and the, the hope here is uh, that he will be rapture-ready and that he will be rapture-ready all day, every day, because today might be the day. And uh, you want to be rapture ready uh, in that uh, in that anticipation. And he doesn't think he is. And that's what we're going to get into in verse twelve. Not that I have already gotten it. He says I don't I don't I don't got it already. Okay. He's not. He does not view himself as rapture ready yet. And that's extraordinary, because he has not become perfected. So he's he himself is not ready for rapture, and God's evidently not ready to, uh, to end his physical life because he's not yet been perfected. And so since he's not, on, not in heaven yet, and he's still on earth, he has to keep reaching forward. And that's the whole impact of pressing on in verses 12 through 16. So uh, remember, we've kind of broken this chapter down into the uh, four different segments, and um, this is really the main address in the whole book. 3 1 through 4 9 is the main address to the book of Philippians, uh, because you can think of chapter 1 and 2 as just background leading up to the main address. And so uh, the Philippians are being admonished to keep pressing onward and upward. And so we dealt with verses 1 through 6 uh, with rejoice and beware. We dealt with verses 7 through 11, where uh, Paul summarized his impressive credentials and then wrote them off as a loss recategorizing them on his profit and loss statement. Now, this third section, this humble attitude equips us all to keep pressing on, to keep pressing on the upward way. Okay, And you might have seen this slide before, and you might have seen this slide with uh, some modifications. Uh, I think at one point I was putting verse 12 in together with verses 7 through 11, and so that section might have been labeled 7 through 12. Okay? And uh, Chris, remind me, we're going to want to check this on the website too to see how these are tagged. Um, anyway, I finally decided to put verse 12 where it belongs in uh, verses 12 through 16 and to end the previous paragraph with verse 11. So the humble attitude, the humble attitude whereby you're willing to, to categorize your profits and your losses accordingly, um, when you're willing to take everything that's gained to you and just give it to Jesus uh, and let it go. You know, that's, uh, that's a very humble attitude. And that's the attitude that's going to equip us all to keep pressing on. Paul said he's pressing on. He encourages them to press on. Um, he tells, he describes his attitude of pressing on in 12, 13, and 14. And then he invites the readers to join him because he says, let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. So uh, he's just saying what his attitude is and inviting all of everybody to join him in that attitude. Then once we pass verse 16, then the rest of the chapter it's, uh, concludes with a warning against those who are earthly-minded and those who fail to esteem our heavenly citizenship. And uh, that's 17 through 21, when uh, we have to deal with earthly-minded people. All right.
So, pressing on the upward way. First thing we see here then in, uh, in verse 12 is a couple of knots. Not that I have already obtained it and not that I have already become perfect. And uh, Paul begins, this passage begins with Paul's negative affirmation. He has not as of yet achieved the objectives of verses 9 and 10. He has not as of yet prepared for the rapture. And uh, he, he disclaims both. He says, not that, either or. Not that, either or. All right? So, begins with Paul's negative affirmation in verse 12. Not that. He says, I'm not saying that. You know. And it's kind of interesting because in 7 through 11, he, you know, he's talking about his attitude and he's talking about his considerations, what he has done, what he continues to do, what he hopes to uh, attain to. And then just in case his readers might uh, get the wrong idea, <laughs> he wants to make it very clear. He says, hold on now, I'm not saying that I'm there. I'm not saying that I'm perfect. I'm not saying that I've been perfected. I'm not saying that I've got it. Not that I have already obtained it. That's how it's translated. Not that I have already obtained it. So everything that he was describing there, what's the it? Not that I've already obtained it. He's saying, I'm not there yet, but I want to be. That's what I'm reaching forward to. And not that I'm rapture ready in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's, that's in order that I might be alive when the trumpet sounds and ready to be raptured. Okay? And to me, that's the only way to understand verse 11. The whole concept that Paul was viewing the resurrection as an iffy thing just makes no sense at all. Uh, that no believer should ever doubt the resurrection. In fact, no unbeliever should doubt the resurrection. Jesus Christ is going to judge the living and the dead. Everybody gets resurrected. Uh, believers get resurrected to glory, and unbelievers get resurrected to bend the knee and confess Jesus Christ as Lord so they can then be cast alive into the lake of fire for all eternity. We all get resurrected. And so nobody can possibly say, if maybe perhaps I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's, that's not dealing with general resurrection. I think it's a specific rapture anticipation. So uh, if you want to be rapture ready, you've got to be uh, conformed to his death. You've got to, be, uh, uh, you got to know the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Then you're rapture ready. All right. So the passage begins with Paul's negative affirmation. He has not as of yet achieved these objectives. He has not as of yet prepared for the rapture. And it might be that the best words in all of verse 12 are the words already, right? Or not yet, already, not as of yet. And because it's used twice for, uh, for the getting and for the being perfected expressions there. And... Um, and so you talk about a statement of faith. You talk about um, the anticipation. See, that's, that's recognizing that it's going to happen. And just because it hasn't happened yet, you're not, you're not uh, wishy-washy. You're not giving up. You're not, uh, uh, it's like when we talk about unfulfilled prophecies. No, quit calling them unfulfilled prophecies. Call them not yet fulfilled prophecies, but they will be yet to be fulfilled prophecies that are promised because God said they were going to happen. So all the first advent prophecies are fulfilled and the second advent prophecies are, don't call them unfulfilled, call them yet to be fulfilled. See, it's the same idea here. Already, I'm not already there, but I'm going to be. I'm not already made perfect, but I'm going to be. And that's what I'm pressing on to. That's what I'm reaching forward to. And so it's, uh, it's curious. All right. So this first phrase that we have is our verb lombano. Not that I already took it. Not that I've already obtained it. And it's not a perfect tense, it's an aorist tense, so I prefer to keep it just as a simple past statement. Not that I already took it. Not that I already got it. Lombano is such a, a generic term for getting something. Getting something, taking something, having something. Uh, receiving something. It's just uh, lombano is such a vanilla generic word for getting something. And as such, it is almost as um, useless or useful <laughs> as the English word for get, right? And think of everything that you and I get. And we get excited. We get nervous. We get 
things. We even get ideas. And then when something, uh, all of a sudden, something falls into place and it all makes sense for the first time ever, we go, oh, I get it. Okay, right? We use get. You know, we use get for, you know, mental apprehensions. We use get for physical apprehensions and, and all kinds of things. See, if you get what I'm talking about here tonight. And Paul says, not that I've already got it. Okay? We also talk about achievements. We also talk about the certainty of something that we can take care of. You know, like, oh, I got this. Okay? I got this. And Paul says, you know, not that I got this already. And that's maybe the best way of all to to render this idiom uh, related to Lombano and its use. And uh, the Strong's number for Lombano is... um, 2983, if you want to track it down, and and have fun because there's 259 of them in the New Testament. There's a there's an awful lot of getting in the New Testament in this verb lombano, and it's it's so idiomatic. And when it's combined with other expressions, and when it's used in different ways, also um, while we're here, we're looking at our lombano. Um, not that I already have already obtained, it's translated obtained, not that I have already obtained it. Do you notice that the it there is italicized? Do you have italics, the word it in italics? Okay. Do you know what that means when it's in italics? That means it's not there. Yeah, yeah, it's not in the Greek. Okay. And, and because it's not in the Greek, um, and, and English doesn't like to have gaps and stuff that Greeks comfortable with. English is not. English wants to have an article, wants to have an object to get, right? Not that I've already gotten, gotten what, right? Not that I've already gotten. I mean, it just leaves us hanging. We don't like that. Not that I've already gotten or already have become perfect. And so there is no it. But it's not a bad understanding. It's not a bad um, inference. We just have to define what it is. You know, what's the meaning of it? What's the meaning of is? What's the... Because there is no it. So what is, what's the in, implied object? Since there's no, there's no declared object, what's the implied object? Well, context demands the, understands the implied object then to be the subject of what he was just speaking about there in verses 8 through 11. That's gaining Christ. And since the verb gain is the closest verb for getting, then I think it's natural to take it that way. And so, not that I have already gotten uh, gaining Christ, and that's gaining Christ, being found in Him, being rapture ready, the, 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 the complete message of what He was saying here in 7 through 11. So, um, context would understand it to be that. Gaining Christ, found in Him, rapture ready. And he says, I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. Okay? And in some ways, that's good. That's humble. In some ways, that's, um, we all should have that attitude, and we're told that we all have to have that attitude in verse 15. And so we'll, we'll describe that. Um, but it's also probably common to humanity to not really feel ready. You know, you got a big finals coming up, and have you really studied well enough, and are you ready? And, you know, um, you'd probably do better if you had two more study days, right? But you don't, because the test is today. So you, you crammed all last night, and now you just got to go deal with it. Um, or you think uh, you've been preparing for something, you're not quite sure you're ready. Or, uh, you know, right up until the night Pastor Cliff was ordained, he didn't think he was ready. You know, and, and that's the thing, you know. Um, can you take another year to prepare more? Of course. You know, are you as ready as you would have been if you would have started a year earlier? Well, yeah, but you know, here's where you are, and and are you ready? And uh, anyway, he didn't. He he did not. Not only did he not say it, he affirmatively said it in the negative. I am not ready. I have not laid hold of it. Okay, and I think that's a difference. So. Um, not that I've already obtained it, not that I've already become perfect. That's the second not that. Not that I already have been perfected. Not that I have already been perfected. 
Now, a getting was an aorist tense. Being perfected is a perfect tense. It's a perfect tense. I was going to put this up on the slide and I forgot to do that. That's all right. To show you the, where these tenses are all lining up. But it's put in parallel. So not that I've done this and not that, I, that, that I've been done this. Okay? Because this is active, this is passive. But they're both saying the same thing. They're parallel expressions. They're equating to one another. So grabbing hold, that is gaining Christ, being rapture ready, is the same thing as being perfected, being made perfect. These are parallel expressions and they equate to one another. Teleao, by the way, you want to have a fun word study, do, do one on teleao. Number 50, 48, used 23 times in the Greek New Testament. You're also going to find cognate adjectives. You're going to find some other expressions. And they're not always used in ways we might expect because the cognate adjective is actually here in verse 15. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And uh, I'll, I'll tease you with this tonight because we're not going to make it to verse 15 tonight. But um, look at verse 12 and put your finger on verse 12 where it says, not that I have already become perfect. And then put your other finger on verse 15 when he says he is. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. Okay? And, wow, in the English reading here, that looks kind of contradictory. <laughs> you know? Because he wasn't perfect in verse 12, but then something happened on the way to verse 15, and now he says, let us, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. And so we're going to do some work on this, and we're going to have some fun with this, because we're going to accept the Bible's definition of perfect, which is mature. We're going to accept the Bible's uh, definition of the process, whereby we're not doing it, God's doing it to us. It's a passive tense, receive the action of the verb. Um, you know, you are to be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect, but it doesn't say perfect yourself. Okay? It's being perfected, and God is the one that does the perfecting. So we'll have some fun with that. Um, and it's kind of amusing when a verb for perfect is in the perfect tense. Okay, That's almost just a pun. But to be perfected in the perfect tense, the perfect passive of teleao. The perfect passive of teleao. And uh, 23 uses, uh, we can look at some of those. In fact, I think we'll have a few of those coming up here uh, shortly, but as long as I've got it up and running, we can look at it. Philippians 3.12, and here's what I was going to show you earlier also, because here's the uh, not that, the ukhati, and then you've got an a day for already, and another a day for another already. And there's your lambano, and there's your teleao. There's your perfection. Already become perfect. And in our teleao, this won't take long. There's, like I say, there's 23 of them, but we'll zip through them pretty quickly. Or some of these I want to save for later. Because the good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. And notice a lot, oh, that's right. A lot of these are in Hebrews, okay? And so uh, in our Hebrew series, we've got uh, to do some work on this because the law made nothing perfect. So thank God he didn't keep us under the law, <laughs> okay? Uh, Israel was under the law, and it made nobody perfect. And, um, and uh, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshipers perfect in conscience. So why keep doing them? You know, they, they don't make the worshipers perfect in, con in conscience, but the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ, what does that do? It does everything these Old Testament sacrifices couldn't do. That's right. And uh, they could never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. You know, and so here we go again, Day of Atonement, here we go again. 
Pentecost, here we go again, Passover, and just the same thing again and again and again. And when uh, when are we done? When when is this stuff going to make us perfect? The answer is never. All it can do is point forward to the substance. The shadows uh, point to the substance. And yet Jesus Christ, by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. That's Hebrews ten fourteen. All right, so we've got we've got some fun things we're going to be doing with that coming up. All right, not that I've already been perfected. Perfect passive of teleao. Passive uh, verbs we don't do. Passive verbs we let them happen. Okay, in a passive verb, if there's something God wants to do to you, let Him do it. If there's something God, uh, He wants to bless you, let Him bless you, right? If He wants to perfect you, let Him perfect you. Ooh, but that sounds like it might hurt. Okay? If He wants to test you, let Him test you. Okay? The, the simplest thing about a passive imperative is, all you gotta do is not stop it, not get in the way, not mess it up, not run from it. And that's, uh, you think it's simple, and yet we fail at it frequently. We fail at obeying the passive imperatives. We fail at the, I mean, even be filled with the Spirit is a passive imperative. God doesn't tell you go fill yourself with the Spirit. He says be filled with the Spirit. So, here I am, Lord, fill me, right? Fill my cup, Lord. Because uh, He's the one that's doing the work. We are receiving the benefit. We are receiving the action. And so uh, the idea of teleao, yeah, to be perfect, to be complete, to have uh, the finishing touches put on there, and and that, and basically, that's what that's what's suiting us for heaven. This is the you know, it's like when the the car dealer is uh, not going to bring the car around because they're going they're going to detail it first. Uh, you know, you've made the purchase, and now they're going to make it perfect, and they're going to bring it to you, and uh, you're going to drive it off a lot. Well, he's not going to take us to heaven, either rapture ready or physical death, uh, until this perfection is done. And uh, and there you go. So since uh, these things are in the parallel that they are, and like I say, I was showing that to you here. The uk hati a day, and then the a a day. We got both of these a days uh, for the not yet, not yet, not yet, and they are parallel. So we we treat these as equal as equal to one another, laying hold of and being perfected. Being perfected equals gaining Christ, found in Him, rapture ready. Okay, The same thing we, did, we decided that the laying hold of, the lambano was. Not that I've got it yet. Not that I've got it. Then, for that perfection to be realized, the saint on earth must become a saint in heaven, face to face with Jesus Christ. As long as we're still on earth, we're still being perfected. And the only way to know we're done, the only way we know that... Uh, you know, God the Father, I guess He's the perfectionist. He, well, He's the perfectionizer. Yeah, He's the one making us perfect. And um, we'll know that He's got us there when He's got us there. Right? I like that. Because He who began a good work in you will perfect it. What He began, remember this way back in chapter 1? He who began a good work in you. I'm confident of this very thing, Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you will teleao it until, and there is an it there for the good thing, he who began a good work in you will teleao it until the day of Christ Jesus. So if you're still here on earth, and I'm looking around the room, you all are, okay, if we're still here, this process is still underway. And, uh, and when we get there, we'll know that we're there. Okay, How fun is that? So, of all the, the things to see when we get there, what are we going to see our first day in heaven? Hebrews 12, 23. There's a gospel song like that. Your first day in heaven, and the saints are greeting you, and Everybody's smiling and singing. and It's your first day in heaven. Hebrews 12 gives us a picture. 
Verse 22 says, You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels. Now positionally, we're already there. We're seated at the Father's right hand. We're in Christ. We have our attention on the things above. It's just that our bodies are still here. We're functioning still here. We're going through the perfecting here. But this is what we're going to see fully when we get there. To myriads of angels. To the general assembly. To the church of the firstborn. I think the general assembly, I've got to work on this still before I'm confident on it, but uh, some of this, we've got the divine council in, in Psalm 50, uh, 82 that we were talking about and the, the gods that have assembled and the sons of the gods, the Beneha Elohim and the, the general assembly there where Jesus Christ has taken his seat and then the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Because once you're there, the whole perfecting process of mortality is over and done with. The spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. So there's a ton of doctrine there that we've got to deal with. So, Paul says, I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. I'm still here. I'm still a work in progress. As, uh, as we all are. Then he says, not that I've already got it, not that I've already been made perfect, but I press on. But I press on. What was that campaign thing about persist? I was going to look that up. It was a Hillary Clinton thing about yet she persisted. I'm, I was trying to think. Because they got a lot, you know what I'm talking about? They had a lot of mileage out of that about yet she persisted, yet she persisted and whatever. And it was a big campaign thing. Okay, well never mind, it doesn't matter anyway. But when I think about pressing on, it's a persistence. It's a, it's a not giving up. And it's, a, it's even, a, the verb is dioko, which surprises us because typically speaking, this is a very bad verb. This is a very bad verb because this is our verb for persecution. This is our verb for some very ugly things. When Jesus was persecuted, when disciples are persecuted, when Jesus warned the disciples that they would be persecuted, dioko is a, is a verb to persecute. And essentially, what's a persecution? But it's a hounding, it's a chasing, it's a, it's a persistent pursuing. And so sometimes it's translated persecute, sometimes it's translated pursue. Here it's translated as press on. And, and really, I mean, it just kind of determines, I mean, the kind of passage you're talking about, you know, it kind of gives you the sense of how you should interpret it. But Paul was, as to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. And we just we read that not long ago in Philippians 3.6. He said, as to the um, the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a dioko, persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. So this is, uh, I think there's 45 uses through the New Testament. I think the bulk of them center on persecution. Secondly, the ones that don't center on persecution center on pursuit. And so if you're not hounding somebody to bring them harm, um, then it's not really correct to, to think of it as a persecution. But if you're pursuing somebody in a positive way, uh, and you have just the same intensity, just the same ferociousness in the pursuit, then, uh, yeah, dioko is a pretty good term to use, don't you think? You know? It's not like, uh, this is not just a, um, an empty thing. This is not just a frivolous waste of time. Okay? This is not a, you know, half the time you watch, why do dogs chase cars? You know, do they have any idea what they're going to do if they actually caught the thing? You know? So it's a pursuit, but it's not really, you know, don't really intend to catch it or stop it or attack it or, or, or whatever. So that kind of an activity I wouldn't call a dioko. Okay, a dioko is you are pursuing something because you want to lay hold of it. 
you are chasing something down and you want to lay hold of it. Like Paul wants to lay hold of the status of being rapture ready. Paul wants to lay hold of victory. He wants to lay hold of the crown. He's certainly been bearing enough crosses. And so he wants to pursue it. He wants to, to track it down. He wants to lay hold of it. See, you know, when a single man sees a pretty girl and he says, oh, I'm going to I'm going to pursue that. Okay? Anyway. And so uh, this is the, uh, the thing here. And so um, 45 uses, like I say, persecute is by far the most common. But when it's not rendered persecute, the idea of pursue is, uh, is a useful one. It's like we have in Romans 14, 19. There's a pursuit there. And it's a positive thing. Let us pursue... So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. That should be an active pursuit. That should be a, a fervent pursuit. That's, uh, you know, and I think the things that make for peace and the building up of one another, edifying other believers, uh, that's not a take it or leave it kind of a thing. It's not a lackadaisical, eh, you know, dog chasing cars. You know, it's, it's fun for a little bit, but I don't really want to catch it. This is a pursuit that you want to actively do. You want to be fervently chasing after this. The building up of one another. That should be a pursuit. Think of it like a dogged, uh, you know, persecution. Prosecution. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I mean, it's like when you graduate MP school and and you're just waiting for that first high-speed pursuit. (laughs) <laughs> and you're just waiting, and you've been running radar for days, and it hadn't happened yet, and then finally you get a runner. And you get that runner, and you're like, this is it. Right? You just know this is it. He's running. First one in days. And so you look at the sergeant, and he's got this grin, because he knows you've been drooling for this for days. And so, can I? Yeah. Hit the switch. On come the whoopee lights, and off we go. Right? And that excitement lasts one time, okay? That lasts until the first pursuit. And then you catch them and you deal with it. And then you, the adrenaline kind of comes down and you kind of start breathing again and then you think, I don't want to do that again. That was, you know, I'm happy that I survived that one. Let's, let's not risk another one. But that's uh, pursuing, pursuing the things that make for peace and the building up of one another. Now, okay, there are cops that thrive on that, and they'll do pursuit after pursuit after pursuit after pursuit. But I was done after the first one. I said, okay, I'm good. We've done that. Anyway, pursuing. It's an active chase. It is an active chase with a desire to, uh, to apprehend what you're chasing after. 1 Corinthians 14.1. Yeah, this is not a, you know, you talk about a, a single man and he's pursuing a, a love interest or whatever. And, you know, really how actively is he pursuing it? Is he just toying with it? Is he just, and how hard is she running? <laughs> That's another question. Maybe she's not running all that hard anyway. All right. 1 Corinthians 14.1, pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. And so the whole love chapter concludes there in chapter 13, faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. And then the imperative says, pursue love, pursue agape, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, and especially that you may prophesy. So that's a positive pursuit. Another positive pursuit in 1 Timothy 6.11 Flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. I think a lot of this language echoes Philippians chapter 3. Take hold of. Do you get it? The eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. But that flee followed by the pursue. So uh, we're not going to be greedy. We're not going to be wrapped up around money. The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. 
Some, by longing for it or lusting after it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you man of God, and Dioko, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Pursue them. The Christian walk is a race. It's a pursuit. And uh, we need to be pursuing. All right. Second uh, Timothy 2.22. Pursue. Flee from youthful lust. Here we go. Here's the cleansing imperative. Do we want to be a vessel for honor or a vessel for dishonor? If anyone cleanses these things, he, he uh, himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor. Sanctified. Useful to the master. Prepared for every good work. That sanctified means you're filled with the Spirit. Prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So if it's not already obvious, fleeing is one thing, pursuing is another thing, uh, and sometimes they happen at the same time if somebody's fleeing and you're pursuing them. But this is... uh, This is the language of what we're seeing here. Paul is pressing on. He is racing on. He is pursuing. He is running after it. He is running after it. That he might lay hold of that for which also he was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Finally, Hebrews uh, 12, 14. You were just there, weren't we? Hebrews 12. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. And so uh, all the doctrine there about pursuing. And then here in Philippians, it's translated to press on. In verse 12, it's translated to press on. In verse 14, it's translated to press on. It's used twice in this uh, paragraph. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's what he's chasing after. That's what he's chasing after. And his eyes are fixed on the prize. Well... It's a good start. This is the color wheel if you want to bring it up. As you can see, 45 uses, and the bulk of them are persecute. The bulk of them are persecute. It's just the small sample that's the pursue. We looked at most of those. Then there's running after, practicing, pressing on, pressing on, seeking after. Yeah, most of these are persecuted, so we don't have to look at those. We're familiar with those. They're all through the Gospels. They're all through the New Testament. Jesus said that all who desire to live in godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You're going to be, you're going to be uh, diokoed, okay? So just deal with it. Raw daff, some of the Septuagint uses. All right, well, we're out of time. We'll come back to this. The, um, the idea of pressing on... The idea of pressing on with the dioko use there, that's the, uh, the emphasis here. And it is. It is an active voice. So passive voice, God is, is uh, perfecting us. Active voice, we're pursuing, we're pressing on, we're reaching forward. And that's the whole, uh, the whole gist of what this paragraph's dealing with. And uh, if we lose focus on that, if we quit looking forward, if we, keep, if we get our eyes off where they're supposed to be, what happens? Well... We find ourselves in the the uh, the other camp here in 17 through 21. We're following the enemies of the cross of Christ. We don't have our eyes fixed on Christ. And uh, God is their appetite, glory in their shame, set their minds on earthly things. So don't, we don't want to be there. We want to be uh, pressing on the upward way. Father, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for this truth. I pray that as we read these verses, we would stop and consider the uh, the implications and the applications And Father, recognizing what is expected of us to run with endurance the race that is set before us, that this pursuit is, uh, it is, it's lights and sirens and it's pedal to the metal. We're we're racing after, we're we're running, Father. And uh, 
Uh, I pray that uh, we would lay aside the sin and the encumbrances, that we would run, that we would be faithful in this, uh, in this pursuit. So teach us how to do these things, Father. I thank you and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.